Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, our our text this morning begins in verse 22 and extends to the end of the chapter. After a few weeks away from John's Gospel, uh, come back this week to look at this last part of John 10, and then next week uh, we'll be looking at the passage in which we hear Jesus declare that he is resurrection and life. But this week, uh, this passage, which actually doesn't follow chronologically on what's gone before, but is linked by John because of the language of sheep and shepherd, um, it actually points us to something vitally important for us, uh, not simply uh, concerning who Jesus is, but especially who Jesus is for us. Uh, Jesus is a Savior who won't let you go. He will not let you go. And and in a world at times where it feels as as though our our lives are unraveling and our our world's falling apart, to know that Jesus has got us, that he's clinging to us, he won't let us go, friends, that's good news. But in in order to hear that good news, not just in our ears, but in a way that penetrates to our hearts, We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we bless you. We bless you that you have met us already in this service and pointing us again and again to who you are for us in Jesus Christ. But Lord, here, especially in the ministry of the word, we we need to be reminded yet again, Jesus, who you are for us. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come that you would open our eyes of faith, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Lord, do your work in our hearts this morning, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you? 
Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So all sorts of researchers will tell you about the importance of being held. I was reading a book this week on trauma and so much of the difficulties in adult life, in later adult life, were actually the results, trauma researchers suggested, of not being held as babies or toddlers or as small children. Um, being held creates those connections of sympathy. It helps with regulation. It, all sorts of, of good benefits come to us emotionally, psychologically, just by being held as children. But we know that, right? I mean, for, for many of us, we, we can remember times when we were children and, and how we went to our fathers or mothers or grandmothers or grandfathers just to be hugged. Not just when things were going badly, but just because we wanted to be hugged. And even today, it's the same thing. It's, it's good for us to be held. It's good for us to be hugged. I'll never forget um, when I was serving as the interim senior pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, which was really my first opportunity to preach week by week and to lead a congregation. Uh, one of our ruling elders, a man named John Hancock, asked me what he could do for me. Uh, I said, John, there's, there's one thing you can do for me. He said, what's that? I said, you can give me one of your patented John Hancock hugs. Because when John Hancock hugged you, you were hugged. Uh, he would like lift me up the, off the ground. He was so much bigger than me and squeeze me. And it was, yeah, you, had, you were hugged. And he said, I got it. And bless his heart, for almost two years, every single week, I don't think there was a week he forgot, he sought me out and gave me a Hancock hug. Even, even now, just because we, we, we want to be held. We, we want to be hugged. And especially when things are going wrong. Especially when it feels as though things are, are starting to, to fall apart. That We need someone to hold us. Our, our, when our spouse hugs us, or our friend holds us, it, it helps. It makes a difference, doesn't it? It helps regulate us. It, it helps us know that we're not alone. It, it helps calms our hearts and, and, and clears our heads. Because, of course, we're all desperate to be seen and desperate to feel secure. And when the worst things happen, when, when those unimaginable things happen, when it, when it feels as though like our, our, our worlds are unraveling, as though we're unraveling, 
We, we long for someone to hold us. When we miscarry a child, or when we lose our job, or when our spouse tells us they're leaving, or when our house burns down, or when we're diagnosed with cancer. When these kinds of things happen, when, when these things enter in, these unimaginable things that are all so imaginable, when they enter in and it feels as though we're unraveling and our world is unraveling, we, we need someone to, to hold us. But listen, even if no one is there to hold you, even if no one is there to put their arms around you, what this text is telling you is, is that someone is there. There is someone there who is holding you, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds us and doesn't let us go, so that, so that neither death nor hell nor sickness nor sadness nor failures nor our faults nor these, these circumstantial events that enter into our lives. What this text is telling us is that nothing can take you out of his hand. He will hold you fast. Well, how is it possible to believe that? Just because the Bible says so? Then what, what, what reasons does this passage give you to, so that you can leave here believing that when the unimaginable thing happens, when the worst thing you can imagine happens... That, that Jesus is holding you fast. How can you believe that? You can believe it, first of all, because, because he chose you. That's what the first part of this passage is telling us. The, the scene actually opens with a new timestamp. It's, it's telling you that it's a different scene from what's gone before in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. What's the timestamp? Well, look at verse 22. At that time... The feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, the, the feast of dedication is, is the Jewish festival that we know as Hanukkah. It, it's a festival that dates from the 2nd century BC in response to the Jews driving Antiochus Epiphanes IV out of Jerusalem. He had defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig to Zeus, and in response, the Jews drove him out and cleansed the temple. And the, and the festival that celebrates that deliverance is Hanukkah, or the, the, the Feast of Dedication. It occurs in winter. Uh, in Ju Jesus' day, it would have started on the day we know as December 25th and would have lasted eight days. And John's telling you this little detail as yet another reminder that that John's gospel is not necessarily arranged chronologically. Rather, he's, he's put this scene right here to fit into his overarching purpose that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that we might believe he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing we might have life in his name, which ironically is the very question the Jews asked Jesus. Did you see that? Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? How does Jesus respond? Verse 25. 
I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So does Jesus answer their question or not? They ask, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Does he answer that question? Some commentators say that that he didn't, that in fact, what Jesus says here isn't strictly true or accurate because he doesn't come right out and tell the Jews who he is. But I disagree with that. Now, over and over again, both in word and deed, Jesus has been telling the Jews, and by extension, you and me, exactly who he is. From John chapter 5 on, he's been telling us. There in John chapter 5, verse 17, he said, My father is working until now. And I am working. And from that point to this, he's made it plain that he is the Messiah. But more than that, he is God himself. He's equal with God. He's he's self-same with the Father. And here again, it's the same. He says in verse 25, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, the testimony of Jesus' works point to Jesus's identity. His works tell you that what he claims about himself is in fact true. And he's been saying that too all through John's gospel as we've seen. Back in John chapter 5 verse 36, Jesus said, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. So, So Jesus hasn't changed. His words and his works have told the Jews over and over and over who he is. So the question then comes, why don't they believe? Well, what does Jesus say? Because you are not among my sheep. You see, the reason for their unbelief is that they are not Jesus's sheep. They, they are not among those whom God has given to Jesus. They're they're not among those whom God, by his spirit, is drawing to himself. In other words, God didn't choose them. God's election is prior to faith. God's choice is prior to our believing. See, we, we don't get ourselves into heaven with an assist from God as though we are the ones whose decision is most important, God kind of pushes us over the finish line. No, God chooses whom he will save and and then gives us the very faith we need to believe. Which is why you and I hear his voice. It's why we have followed him. It's it's because God in Jesus has, has chosen us already. He's the one who gives ears to hear. He's the one who gives hearts to believe. And, and if you are here this morning and you are following after Jesus, if you hear his voice and you follow him, it's because God chose you. You're his sheep. Now, friends, that's what the doctrine of election is all about. The doctrine of election isn't a bludgeon to, to somehow uh, beat up others with it as though being reformed is better than not being reformed and we're so superior than you. It, it's not some sort of secret knowledge to get a leg up on others. The doctrine of election gives us absolute assurance that Jesus will hold us fast. Why? He chose us. He chose us. He's the one who made us sheep. He's the one who gave us ears. He's the one who changed our hearts. 
He's the reason why we believe. He chose us. Now listen to me. If, if God in Jesus chose you, is it really possible that God's going to lose you? Is it really possible that there's going to be something that comes up in your life that's going to somehow cause Jesus to lose his grip on you? Say, oops. No. Jesus is the one who chose you. And even if, even if all hell, even if the devil himself should come and pound on you and seek to somehow pry you out of Jesus' grasp, that's not possible. Why? It's not possible because Jesus chose you and, and God in Jesus Christ will not lose the very ones he's chosen. The words of the old hymn are still absolutely true. We're going to sing them at the end of the service. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never no, never. No, never forsake. Why can we believe that? How, how is it possible to believe that is true? That, that Jesus will not let you go. He will not forsake you because he chose you. You're his sheep. You hear his voice. You follow him. My friends, you can believe that also, not just because he chose you, it's, it's possible to believe that Jesus will hold you fast because he clings to you. I mean, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? Look at verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Now that, that word that the English Standard Version uses in verse 28 for snatch, it actually shows up four times in John's Gospel. Two of those times are here, verses 28 and 29. But there's two other places where the, that word is used. One is in John chapter 6, verse 15, where John writes, they are perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. That's our word. Take him by force to make him king. And then John chapter 10, verse 12, the wolf snatches them. There's the word. Snatches them and scatters them. This, the wolf snatching sheep, of course, out of a sheep pen. So those two uses, along with these uses here, they, they all point in a similar direction. Uh, the idea that, that someone or, or something is trying to take us by force away from Jesus. Now, what does Jesus say about that? Is, if someone were to come or something to come to try to take you by force out of Jesus' hand, is it possible that someone can take you out of Jesus' clinging hands? What does Jesus say to that? Not possible. Not, not, not possible at all. Because Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the reason why those who trust in him will never perish. And because those things are so... No one and nothing can take you away from Jesus. Jesus has you in his powerful, nail-pierced hands. He will never let you go. But then he goes on even further. In verse 29, you see it? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, before we focus on the, the Father's hand, just, just notice the first part there. The Father who has given them to me. That again is, the, is all about election, that, that God the Father has, has chosen sheep, has chosen a people, and he's given these ones whom he has chosen to Jesus. He's chosen to save a people for his son. And he's given these to his son as a, as a gift, as a gift of inestimable value, a gift of, of delight and joy and love, a, a treasure beyond compare. And, and God the Father has given God the Son the greatest gift he can imagine, namely you. You're the Father's gift that he's given to the Son. And me, and God's people, uh, the church, and the good and great Father who has who has given this great gift to His Son, has us also in His hand, in His in His right hand, in His omnipotent hand. And the picture here is of 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 Jesus's nail pierced hand clinging to you, and the Father's hand overlaid the hand of omnipotence grasping hold so that if it would even be conceivable that some could snatch you by force out of Jesus's hand, the Father's hand is overlaid upon you, clinging to you, grasping you. But then Jesus tells us something even more astonishing than that in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. With all of the emphasis in John's gospel and distinction between the Father and the Son, here Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We, we share the same nature so that the God of heaven and earth, the God who made everything in them, the, the God who flung stars into the sky, the God who took his pinky to carve out the Grand Canyon, who, who decided to lift up the Appalachians and the Adirondacks and the Rockies and decided to carve out the Mississippi River, This God who did this by omnipotent power, he is the God who is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is clinging to you. Don't you see? He holds you fast because the one who clings to you clings to you with the hand of omnipotence. It may be you're here today and and you feel as though emotionally psychologically, but even physically, you're on a knife's edge. You're like a tottering wall, or you're on a pedestal that's tottering, and it's not going to take a whole lot for you to fall off one way or the other, and to fall out of sanity, or out of integrity, or even out of existence. Wouldn't take a whole lot for your life to unravel. Listen, listen, Jesus has got you. He's clinging to you with the very hand that made all the world that you see. You are as secure as you can possibly be because he holds you fast. He holds you fast. The hymn writer was right in saying, more secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. Not yon star on high abiding, nor the bird in home nest hiding. Of course, it's possible for a star to fall from the sky. It's possible for someone to to rip a bird out of her nest, but it is not possible for someone to take you out of Jesus' hands. He's the one who chose you. He's the one who clings to you. Friends, there's a final reason here why it's possible to believe this. 
possible to believe that Jesus holds you fast. It's because he came to you. He came to you just as he's come to these. They understand exactly what he has just said. In verse 31, the Jews pick up stones in order to stone him. Jesus asks him somewhat facetiously why they're going to do this. What do they say? Well, it's verse 33. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And Jesus responds to that by quoting the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he quotes a section, a short section from Psalm 82, verse 6. I said to them, you are gods. And Jesus's point there is that um, if the Old Testament calls rulers gods, whether these rulers are kings or prophets or maybe even lower level angels, if he calls them gods, gods who are in fact going to die in the divine judgment, then titles don't mean a whole lot. It's actually the works that matter, which is why he says in verse 37, the works, pay attention to the works that I do, they validate my claim to be the son of God. But But in the midst of what Jesus says, I want you to notice one thing in particular. It's verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came. Now, this is the only place in John's gospel where Jesus uses that phrase, word of God. But of course, we know from thus far in John's gospel, uh, almost now 10 chapters through, that that the word is a a tremendously important title for who Jesus is in in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, Nothing was made apart from the word, right? I mean, John uses that phrase, and it's significant, but, but Jesus using it. This is highly unusual. And how does he use it? The word of God came. The word of God came. What does that remind you of? Well, it should take you back to to John 1.14. Our ESV renders that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in the original language, it's actually nearly the same structure, chapter 1, verse 14, to, to this phrase here in chapter 10, verse 35. Here, it's the word of God came. Literally, John 1:14 is the word in flesh came. I think that parallelism is, is significant and intentional. Both, both Jesus as he's speaking and John as he's writing this gospel, they expect us to pick up this echo Jesus is saying in the Old Testament, the word of God came to those rulers who were called gods. But here, now, the word of God came. He's, in pres- he's present. And he's declaring through his words and works that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the son of the living God who gives life to all who believe in his name. You keep looking for this Old Testament reality of the word of God coming in some form. And Jesus is saying to these Jews, here I am. I'm the word of God who has come. I've come through my words and works. Believe in me. But listen, Jesus is here now. Jesus didn't just came. He comes. He's present here now. Declaring through uh, the ministry of the word, read and proclaimed who he is for you. It's the word of God through the word of God. The one who's, who's in the Father and in whom the Father is 
Over and over he comes to you in the ministry of the word. Week by week he comes to you to remind you, to point to you to, you, to himself, to enter into those places and those spaces where you let no one else go. Jesus comes over and again to remind you, no one's going to take you out of my hand. These things are super hard. Life is unraveling. I'm here. How does, that, how does that happen? Is that just simply some still small voice inside? Well, Jesus uses his word. He uses his word to point you to himself so that when all of life is unraveling and, and things seem to be faltering, that you might remember who he is and who you are, your place in this world and, and God's great love and compassion for you in Jesus Christ. He comes, the word of God comes not to upbraid you or to blame you or to shame you. Ultimately, Jesus, the word of God comes this morning, right where you are, to get down in the pit with you, to hold you, and ultimately to rescue you. I I was recently reminded this past week of an episode from uh, the early 2000s television series, The West Wing, for many of you, that was a, a favorite TV series. You might remember a particular episode where the deputy chief of staff, Josh, uh, is dealing with all sorts of, of dark emotion and trauma because of an attempt on his life. And finally, he's persuaded to go to a trauma therapist. After one of these meetings, he actually meets up with his boss, uh, Leo, who is the chief of staff of the White House. And Leo asks him, how's it going? And after a long pause, Josh begins to describe some of the darkness. And then there's another long pause. And instead of commenting directly on the darkness that Josh is experiencing, Leo tells a story. And he says, this guy's walking down the street and he falls into a a hole. It's one so deep that he cannot get out. And as he, after giving up trying to scramble out of the hole, he, he starts looking around and a doctor passes by. And our guy shouts out, hey you, hey you, can you help me get out of this hole? And the doctor writes a prescription and he throws it in the hole and he moves on. And then a, then a priest walks by and the guy shouts out, father, I'm, I'm down in this hole, can you help me? And the priest writes out a prayer and he throws it in the hole and he moves on. Then a friend walks by, and our guy says, Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole, to which our guy says, Are you stupid? Now we're both in the hole. And his friend says, Yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know how to get out. Listen, the reason why you and I can believe that Jesus has got a hold on us when everything seems like it's unraveling. The reason why we can believe that Jesus is holding us in those moments of sadness and sorrow, anxiety and affliction, when things seem devastating, is that he comes to us as one who jumps in the pit with us. He, 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 he jumps in the pit with us, but he also says to us, I've been in this pit before. In fact, I've been in the grave. I've gone all the way to death's door. 
After all, Jesus is the man of sorrows. He's the one afflicted to, with grief. He's the one who who's went all the way to the cross and actually was nailed, crucified, abandoned, betrayed. He's also the one who's, who's triumphed over death. He's been down before. But Jesus knows the way out. He knows how to rescue you. And friend, he's not letting go of you. In the midst of your sadness and sorrow, when you feel as though the waves are overwhelming you, Jesus will not let go of you until he brings you all the way home. Home to himself. Home to the new heavens and the new earth. He will bring you home. You can believe that because he chose you. He clings to you. He comes to you. He holds you fast. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, there are several of us who are overwhelmed, and it seems as though the darkness comes and waves and washes over us deep griefs, deep sorrows, deep difficulties. It feels as though we might unravel. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet those ones and you would speak through your word to their hearts. And they would know you were saying to them, I'm not letting you go. I've got a hold of you. I'm holding you fast. Lord, please. You are the one who made us secure by your own choice, but also by the very scenes that are pictured in the meal we're about to participate in. Because you were crucified for sinners like us, and you were raised on the third day, you made a way for sinners like us to know you and to rest secure in your love and care for us. We bless you and praise you for that and ask now that you would meet us at your table. If we prayed in Jesus' name, amen.